0: This episode contains depictions of war that may be unsuitable for some audiences. It was 12:35 p.m. on Monday, December 8, 1941, in the Philippines, just 8 hours after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The drone of aircraft intruded on the silence of Clark Field, the United States' main airfield on Luzon, which is the Philippines' largest island and an hour and a half north of Manila. Private Lester Tenney Tenenberg a lanky, 5'9", 21-year-old from Chicago and a radio operator in the U.S. Army's 192nd Tank Battalion shaded his eyes as he raised his head in the direction of the approaching aircraft. The tank men around him grew excited. What a beautiful sight! Hey, good old Uncle Sam has come through with the air support we need! Tenny counted 54 bombers flying high over the field. He squinted, straining his eyes to see their insignia. He thought he saw a rising sun on their underbellies. I don't think they're... An explosion shook the ground, interrupting Tenny's observation. Jap bombers! Someone screamed from across the airfield. Bombs whistled as they fell to Earth, focused on dozens of U.S. aircraft lined up on the runway. The first United States P-40 Pursuit fighter planes scrambled to take off, their ground and radio crews still on the airstrip. Bombs exploded around the aircraft as they taxied, crippling many. Other P-40s continued roaring down the runway, but were blown apart before taking flight. Only three P-40s got airborne. Tenney and the 192nd Battalion hurried inside their tanks amid the confusion and carnage of bombs raining down on the airfield. Falling bombs blew apart hangars in the mess Hall. Black smoke filled the air, obscuring everyone's view. But the tank battalion couldn't find their anti-aircraft ammunition, and their machine guns couldn't reach the high-flying bombers. When the bombing stopped, 35 Japanese Zero fighter planes whizzed down, strafing the field, aircraft, and soldiers. The zeros focused first on grounded US aircraft. They then turned attention on the living quarters and ground personnel, flying low enough that American servicemen could see the smiles on the Japanese pilots' faces. And indeed, those pilots had plenty to be proud of that day. But the zeros, unlike the bombers before them, were in machine gun range, and the American gunners took aim. A big bull-like gunner in one of the 192nd Tank Battalion tanks caught a Zero in his sights and let go a burst of gunfire, and someone called out in joy. Look! A Zero in flames! It was the United States Armored Force's first Japanese aircraft takedown of World War II, and the men of the 192nd Tank Battalion including Private Tenny, were damn proud. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This week's story is one of inhumanity, forgiveness, and redemption more than 70 years in the making. This is the story of Private Lester Tenney. Lester Irwin Tenenberg was born in July 1920 in Chicago, Illinois. He was the fifth and youngest child of August Tenenberg and Fanny Goldsmith, who were both Jewish Americans. August's and Fanny's parents were all born in Poland and Germany and immigrated to the United States. Lester was eight years younger than his next oldest sibling. In December 1918, a year and a half before Lester was born, the Tenenbergs lost two daughters in a tragic accident. Their 12-year-old daughter was trying to light the gas stove. Her dress caught on fire. She went to roll in the snow, but ended up dying on the way to the hospital. Her younger sister caught cold that day and died a week later. The family doctor suggested the Tenenbergs have another child. And 18 months later, Lester was born out of that catastrophe. Today we might call him a rainbow baby. Lester grew up in Chicago, at first in the South Chicago area, then moving to North Chicago with his parents by the time he was 15. They lived in a multi-family building right on the shores of Lake Michigan. That is, if I've used Google Maps correctly, and street names and numbers haven't changed too much. Lester attended an all-boys high school and studied aeronautical engineering, but he dropped out of high school in his senior year because, as he explained, I thought I knew more than my teachers and school was a waste of my time. By 1940, the 20-year-old worked as a truck driver, a salesman, and a cook. During summer 1940, Lester came across an article in the Reader's Digest, stating,
1: The younger generation, that is, the war babies, now reaching maturity, seem utterly incapable of taking on their responsibilities to the nation. They are aimless, soft, and generally immature.
0: So war babies are the babies born during and right after World War I. Today, we refer to those individuals as the greatest generation, the one that fought in World War II. But back in 1940, that article had a tremendous impact on Lester. He was not aimless or soft or immature. In October, 1940, Lester, foreseeing war on the horizon and wanting to choose the men he'd fight and serve with rather than being assigned by draft, enlisted as a private in that 192nd Tank Battalion, Army National Guard. Plus, he wanted to serve his one year in the military and then get on with his life. While he was in line to sign up, he learned that the legal age to enlist without parental consent was 21. 20-year-old Lester wouldn't turn 21 for nine more months, so when he reached the front and the recruiter asked, In what year were you born? Lester immediately, confidently, and untruthfully responded, In 1919, sir. He was actually born in 1920. So, by aging himself a year, the still underage Lester Tenenberg was a proud member of Company B, 192nd Tank Battalion. He went home wearing his army uniform and his parents were just as proud. Within a month, he was off to training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. His first job in the tank battalion was cook, since he had experience and someone had to make the food. Eventually, the military cooks arrived and Tenney trained as a radio operator. From what I understand, Tenney and the 192nd spent nearly a year training at Fort Knox, and in September 1941 headed to Louisiana for maneuvers. One weekend before leaving Fort Knox, Tenney got a visit from his longtime girlfriend Laura from Chicago, and, almost on a whim, they found a justice of the peace and got married. Tenney's Company B did well in their war game maneuvers in Louisiana. October 1941 was approaching, meaning that Tenney's one year and done should have been almost up except General Douglas MacArthur had other plans for Private Tenney and the rest of the 192nd Tank Battalion. The Philippines was the United States' main stronghold in the Pacific. Throughout 1941, General MacArthur directed the buildup of the U.S. military presence there in anticipation of hostilities with Japan. That's why, on October 20th, 1941, instead of heading home to Chicago, to Laura, and to the rest of his life, Tenney found himself on a train headed for San Francisco and then on a ship taking him overseas. Destination unknown, at least to him. They arrived in Manila on November 20th, 1941, Thanksgiving Day. The battalion's officers got a turkey dinner. Tenney and the other enlisted men ate hot dogs. World War II started 18 days later. We interrupt this broadcast to
1: bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash! Washington! The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further developments.
0: Just before 8 a.m. on December 7, 1941, bombs dropping on Pearl Harbor woke the residents of Honolulu, Hawaii. Meanwhile, across an ocean and a continent, people on America's eastern coast were settling in to listen to the early afternoon Brooklyn Dodgers-New York Giants NFL game. Soon, however, their lazy Sunday listening would be interrupted with the news flash that you just heard about the Hawaii bombing. Half a world away, the news of Pearl Harbor simultaneously reached the Philippines around 3 a.m. on December 8, 1941. In Hawaii, military personnel and civilians scrambled for safety or for weapons to fight off the attack. While in New York, the major news outlets scrambled to uncover details about the bombing and discover what this meant regarding America entering war. In the Philippines, Private Lester Tenney Tenenberg and his 192nd Tank Battalion brothers scrambled to move all their tanks and armored vehicles to Clark Field, about 60 miles north of Manila, by 8 a.m. They weren't waiting to hear about entering war. They were preparing to face it, under orders from the battalion's commander. Our job is to protect this field. Prepare for the landing of Japanese paratroopers. In response, one of Tenny's fellow tank men complained, Well, that's just great, since we're still completely confused about how to operate these new tanks' cannons. Tenney and the 192nd Tank Battalion had arrived in the Philippines with brand new tanks. Tanks that were very much different than the ones they had been trained on at Fort Knox and in Louisiana. Tank operators vented over the company's radio. Where the hell are the shells for this damn cannon? We can't find them any place in this damn tank either. Anyone got any ideas? Yeah, read the instruction book back at camp. Thanks for that. It's a little too late now. Captain, where are the shells for the cannon? How the hell should I know? But while the tank men bickered, Tenny's attention was drawn to the airstrip. Say... What are those airmen doing? Groups of flight crews, armament men, and radio operators surrounded a lineup of B-17 Flying Fortress bombers and several dozen P-40 Pursuit fighter planes. Pilots and crews boarded, and each plane roared down the dirt airstrip, one by one, and took flight. It was 8.30 a.m. The field seemed unusually silent after the last plane departed, and Tenney wondered aloud, Is that the big airstrike? Are they headed to Formosa? I sure hope so. We'll hit them hard, on land, before they can take off. A little payback for Pearl. But the planes weren't heading towards Formosa, that's present-day Taiwan. Instead, they stayed in a holding pattern over Luzon Island's airspace. Because, unbeknownst to the 192nd Tankmen, the Airmen, and almost everyone else at Clark Field, U.S. Generals in the Philippines and Washington, D.C. were intensely discussing their next move. Do not let your planes be attacked on the ground." A general in Washington, D.C. commanded Major General Louis H. Bremerton, who was over the U.S. Army's Far East Air Force in the Philippines. In response, Bremerton had launched that parade of aircraft Tenney had wondered about. Throughout the morning of December 8th, Bremerton sought approval to begin the big raid on Formosa. But Commanding General Douglas MacArthur hesitated. Bremerton's 715 AM request was denied. At 8.50 a.m., he was told to await orders. Even at 9.25, when Japanese planes struck a field 100 miles north of Clark Field, Bremerton's request to launch the strike was denied. Finally, at 10.15 a.m., MacArthur ordered the airstrike, and Bremerton passed those orders along. All aircraft returned to ground for refueling and reloading, Fully arm and fuel all B 17s ready for 1400 hours launch. We are headed to Formosa. 17 Flying Fortress bombers touched down at Clark Field, one after another. Armament crews met the planes to load 100 and 300 pound bombs. Then the P 40 pursuit planes landed for refueling, lining up in formation ready for launch. The pilots and crews went to lunch, prepping for a 500 mile afternoon flight to Formosa a dusk air raid and a night flight home. But at 12.35 p.m., while the pilots finished lunch and the tankmen still searched for their cannon shells, Japanese bombs began falling. Servicemen, those not already killed or wounded, sprinted for the safety of the trenches that they had begrudgingly dug in the weeks prior. Some made it, others were cut in half or blown apart by shrapnel. As the first bombs had dropped, Tenney and the 192nd Battalion hurried inside their tanks, but they still hadn't found those cannon shells. So the only return fire the tanks could offer was the machine guns mounted on the tanks, and they were of little use on bombers some 20,000 feet above the ground. The bombers rained down 636 bombs on Clark Field, which had become a perfect target with those fully loaded bombers positioned for takeoff. Eventually, a voice came over the tank battalion's radio. Look under the radio operator's seat. You'll find 50 shells, armor-piercing, and others. Yes, let's get those bastards. As the tank men began loading the armor-piercing shells, the bombs stopped dropping, and 35 Japanese Zero fighters whizzed down, strafing the field, aircraft, and soldiers. They focused first on what remained of the P-40s and flying fortresses. American forces returned machine gun fire, downing at least a few of the zeros. By 1.30 p.m., the Japanese planes were gone. The American airstrike was supposed to have started at 2 p.m. Instead, the black smoke silently cleared, allowing Tenney and the other servicemen to view the full wreckage of what, just that morning, had been the largest U.S. aircraft fleet in the Pacific. News of the Clark Field and other Luzon Island bombings would interrupt national television back in the United States but the information was sparse and somewhat erroneous, claiming the Japanese had bombed the city of Manila as badly as they had bombed Pearl Harbor. We interrupt this program to take you to the NBC Newsroom. The White House also reported today a uh, simultaneous air attack on army and navy bases in Manila. This report followed the President's declaration that all army and bases on the island of Oahu in Hawaii are now under air attack. This bulletin came to you from the NBC Newsroom in New York. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. By the end of December, U.S. forces, including Tenney and the 192nd Tank Battalion had retreated to the Bataan Peninsula. They held off Japanese troops for three months until disease and lack of food forced surrender on April 9, 1942. Private Lester Tenney was now a prisoner of war. And despite Japan's initial assurances that POWs would be treated kindly, One of his captors smashed Tenny's nose in with the butt end of a rifle on the very day of surrender. And then he went on the almost 70 mile baton death march through the hot, wild Philippine landscape with barely enough food and water to remain on his feet. To encourage himself, he made little goals. Make it to that line of mango trees. Make it to the bend in the road. Make it to that water buffalo. Here's a voice actor reading Tenny's recollections of the march.
1: You had to stand on your own two feet and you had to keep moving. If you fell down, you died. If you had to go to the bathroom, you died. If you had a malaria attack, you died. The Japanese would just kill you, period. You had to stay on your feet. If you looked at a Japanese soldier the wrong way, he would beat the hell out of you.
0: He didn't stop, but he nearly didn't finish the march when a guard on horseback slashed Tenny in the back with a sword. However, he was even lucky in that At one point, Tenney observed a POW who was sick and disoriented and couldn't stand. A Japanese guard knocked him out, then ordered two other POWs to dig a shallow grave for him. When they refused, one was shot in the head. Two more POWs were ordered to dig two graves, one for the dead POW and one for the knocked-out POW. Tenney later told Parade Magazine reporter Peter Moss that he had heard the original prisoner moaning as he was being covered with dirt. At the march's end, Tenney stayed at Camp O'Donnell for 7 weeks, until June 1942 when he and the other death march survivors were sent to Cabana Tuan POW camp. Tenney remained at Cabanatuan until Japanese officials decided to send him to Japan. I don't have an exact date, but that was probably sometime in late 1943 or early 1944. He and 500 other POWs spent nearly a month on board a prisoner transport to Japan. These infamous transport ships would become known as hell ships for their indescribably inhumane conditions. He arrived at a Japan camp about 35 miles from Nagasaki. You probably know that name because a hydrogen bomb would be dropped there in 1945. Tenney and the other camp POWs worked in a coal mine owned by the Mitsui Company. The mine was so dangerous that Japanese miners refused to work in it. He and his fellow prisoners shoveled coal for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, for little or no pay. They survived on water and three small bowls of rice per day, amounting to less than 600 calories. At some point, their intake was reduced to 400 calories per day. For perspective, that's about two cups of cooked rice. Prisoners were often beaten by prison camp guards and by the mine employees. And Tenney had another reason for staying clear of the guards, his heritage.
1: After seeing other Jews beaten by guards who sympathized with their Nazi allies, I concealed my Jewish heritage from the Japanese.
0: But even that precaution wasn't enough. One day, two Japanese overseers, feeling that Tenney wasn't working fast enough, beat him with a pickaxe and a shovel. His nose and left shoulder were broken, and the pickaxe pierced his side. It missed his hip, but left him with a permanent limp. Finally, in October 1925, after three years and six months as a prisoner of war, Tenney was released. He weighed 98 pounds, and all but eight of his teeth had been knocked out. After release, Tenney was brought back to the United States where he spent time recovering in a military hospital. But sad news awaited him at home. His wife, Laura, thinking he had died, had remarried. So Tenney and Laura's marriage was annulled. In 1946, Tenney wrote a letter to the U.S. State Department on a topic that would echo into his old age. He described his POW experiences and asked how to mount claims against those who imprisoned him. He received a typewritten response.
1: Dear Sergeant Tenney, we're looking into that issue and advise you not to retain an attorney.
0: Just a life rule here. When anyone, especially especially the government, advises you not to obtain an attorney? Do the opposite, because what he didn't know was that after the POWs returned home, POWs were given U.S. forms to sign that bound them not to speak publicly about what had been done to them, reported Peter Moss of Parade Magazine. It was part of an early Cold War battle with the USSR over the future of Japan. A communist Japan was not an option. And the U.S. government did not want former POWs spreading stories that could offend the Japanese who the United States was trying to create a treaty with. Keep these forms and this treaty in mind because it's going to come up later. Some POWs reported being told to forget what happened to them and move on with their lives. Tenney would later explain that,
1: We didn't know, or at least believe in, the effects of PTSD at that time.
0: Tenney, though, never received nor signed that form. Tenney's life went on. In 1946, he married Millie Waller, also from Chicago, and by 1950, the couple was living in Miami, Florida, with their one-year-old son, and where 30-year-old Tenney owned his own general accounting business. By this time, he had officially changed his last name to Tenney, rather than Tenenberg, as he was born with. That marriage, however, didn't last, and by 1959, he and Millie had divorced, and Tenney had moved to California where he met divorcee Betty Levi. The two married in February 1960 in San Diego, California. During the 1960s, Tenny, a high school dropout, you'll remember, earned multiple business degrees, including a PhD in finance. He taught at San Diego State University and in 1966, Tenny, Betty, and their sons moved to Tempe, Arizona, where Tenny taught at Arizona State University and began a company that provided financial and retirement planning for other companies. In summer 1968, Tenny's stepson encouraged the family to host a 20 year old college exchange student from Japan. Tenny was hesitant, recalling being angry and bitter toward the Japanese people. Still, they decided to host Mr. Toru Tisaka, and Tenny couldn't have predicted the impact that that summer visit would have on his life. Although Tenny and Toru were initially uncomfortable with the situation, the young Japanese man inspired his host father to get over his old wounds, reported Manuel Roig Franzia of the Washington Post. So well did the summer go, that in the early 1980s, Tōru Tisaka invited Tenny and Betty to Tōru's wedding in Japan. It was Tenny's first trip there since the war. During that trip, Roig Franzia reported in the Washington Post, Tenny came to a conclusion.
1: I decided that even though many of our captors were barbaric, others were unsophisticated young men from the Japanese countryside, who misinterpreted their orders and committed atrocities because they feared retribution from higher-ups. A lot of killing was done by people who didn't want to kill. That became my news story.
0: Tenney went on to share that message with groups in the United States and in Japan, at POW reunions, senior citizen centers, politicians' offices, and even with reporters.
1: I don't have hatred in my heart. The more I associated with the Japanese, the less hatred I had.
0: In 1993, Tenney retired from teaching and, according to his obituary, quote, shifted into a role as a prominent thorn in the side of Japanese authorities unwilling or unable to acknowledge what had happened during the war. And I have to say, that's one of the coolest things I've ever read in an obituary. Tenney published a war memoir called My Hitch in Hell and received a handwritten note of congratulations from then-President Bill Clinton. In 1999, Tenney filed a POW reparations lawsuit in a California state court against Japanese corporations Mitsubishi, Mitsui, Kawasaki, and Nippon Steel, who all used POWs for slave labor during the war. Many other former POWs follow suit. The Japanese corporations, represented by American law firms, claimed that a 1951 treaty between the U.S. and Japan included clauses meaning that Japanese companies didn't owe anything, including apologies or compensation. Remember those forms the POWs had to sign? Well, the treaty mentioned by Japanese corporations is the one that the U.S. government was working on when they had the released POWs sign forms saying they wouldn't talk about their experiences. Tenney's and the other POWs lawsuits moved from state courts to federal and a federal judge eventually dismissed them, basically saying that the opportunity for the POWs themselves and for their posterity to continue living in a free country serviced any debt the companies would owe the former POWs. Nippon Steel applauded the decision. Keep in mind that at a similar time period, the US was seeking reparations from Germany for Holocaust victims. Undaunted, Tenney continued working for POWs survivors to receive apologies and compensation, He introduced bills for the U.S. government to pay former POWs $20,000 each in recognition of their services. He spoke with lawmakers in the U.S. and Japan, including then-Senator Joe Biden, who was a Democrat from Delaware. In 2005, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe apologized in person to Tenney. But the Prime Minister had stopped short of giving a formal public apology to all former POWs in his address to Congress earlier that day. In May 2008, Tenney became national commander of the American Defenders of Bataan and Corregidor, a group of former POWs in the Philippines. One of the group's hopes was to receive official apologies from Japan and or compensation from Japanese companies that enslaved POWs. As national commander, Tenney welcomed a Japanese ambassador to the group's 2009 annual convention. The ambassador apologized on behalf of his country Tenney was among half of the survivors present who applauded that apology, saying,
1: If you hate the Japanese, have hatred in your heart, you are still a prisoner of the Japanese.
0: Later that same year, an 88-year-old Lester Tenney underwent his bar mitzvah at Ohev Shalom Synagogue in Washington, D.C. Raised Jewish but not very observant, Tenney had never celebrated bar mitzvah. Further, You'll recall that he hid his Jewish identity from his Japanese captors to avoid further beatings. When Rabbi Shmuel Hersfeld learned of the omission, the rabbi declared he would do it. Tenny recalled,
1: How could I say no?
0: It is a truly beautiful moment on Tenny's journey of redemption and forgiveness. In 2010, when he was 90 years old, he went to Tokyo on the first-ever Peace, Friendship, and Exchange Initiative, which was a gesture at reconciliation to former POWs from the government of Japan. He was, in fact, instrumental in getting these friendship visits started. Of this trip, Tenney recalled,
1: The Japanese people were wonderful. They were very kind. They were very hospitable. No question about it. They treated us beautifully. And there's no reason why they shouldn't. We didn't do anything wrong in the war.
0: As Lester Tenney entered his 90s, he worried that the horrific history he'd live would be forgotten. And he still desired the formal apology from the highest levels of Japan's government. He told an Associated Press reporter in 2015,
1: If Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe comes to address U.S. Congress, I would like him to say, I bring with me an apology from the industrial giants that enslaved American POWs. I'm afraid that when Mr. Abe leaves here, all of it's going to be forgotten. They're gonna forget about apologies to the POWs. They're going to forget they did anything wrong.
0: That formal apology didn't happen. However, in January 2017, more than 71 years after being released from captivity in Japan, Tenney received an apology letter from the Mitsubishi Material Corporation. Although that wasn't the company that imprisoned him, Tenney was grateful. Lester Tenney's fight ended a month later on February 24, 2017 in Carlsbad, California. He was 96 years old and survived by Betty, his wife of 57 years, a son, two stepsons, seven grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Tenny's obituary read, He eventually forgave the Japanese people for the atrocities visited upon him and thousands of other prisoners, but he never forgot. He waged a relentless and ultimately successful quest to win apologies from Japanese leaders for their nation's brutality. But I think Lester Tenney would want us to finish his story with his own words of encouragement.
1: Any story of war is a story of hate. It makes no difference with whom one fights. I feel that our hatred surely destroys us spiritually. There's no doubt in my mind that the Japanese soldiers were made the way they were by the war and therefore did not act as God would wish.
0: Lester Tenney's story reminds us of the power that forgiveness brings into our lives and of the destruction that hate wreaks. Another American at Clark Field on that first day of World War II likewise understood the importance of faith, bravery, and selflessness. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. Thank you for taking time to listen to Lester Tenney's story. If you want to see pictures of Tenny and other parts of his story, visit this episode's webpage. The link is in the episode description. You'll also find a list of the sources I used when I was learning about Tenny's life. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend. Helping others find this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Additional editing by Tyler Harmon, dramatizations are based on historical research and records although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue I'll be back next week with the story of a soldier who ran into the bombs rather than away from them